We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. This is an interview that we did at the start of the lockdown with former Tottenham and Norwich midfielder Paul McVeigh. Now, keynote speaker, travels around the world, does a lot of work in psychology and has a doctorate in psychology as well. So basically wanted to chat about is psychology really what we say it is in the game? We all we all recognise its importance, but are we really you know are we really putting it in our work and our daily processes? So really good topic here. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Instagram at Gary Kernin on Twitter. We will have a new series for the podcast coming up very soon. I'm just going to keep putting out the the interviews that we recorded over the lockdown so if you're a fan of the podcast and it would really help if you if you helped us up with a push on the itunes rating and a comment about you know what you're enjoying maybe some requests for future interviews and we'll try and make that happen for you so and then a little social media mention would really help thanks so much for listening thanks so much for the support here's paul enjoy paul thank you appreciate you joining us and you, big man. We haven't really set aside the list of questions here. No, sparked no. something in me, and I'll and I'll get to it. One thing that I found interesting when we're on the topic of of this break and COVID and what it's what it's challenging us to do, I do see a lot of coaches that are that are really worried about the technical ability. But well, the thing that I find interesting about player development is that. As much as it's great to engage the kids in the in the skill and the technical area, what are clubs doing to help, even from a well-being standpoint, as these kids are without their their mental emotional support, or from the tactical standpoint, what are teams doing on a mental side of the game? Do you, have you looked at this and say, like, guys, what's going on here, or, or what's your take on what you've watched across the post in social media over the past two months? So I suppose I think if I just touch on what um, what I just mentioned there about delivering a session to you know a professional football team playing in England, you know they are they're okay. Obviously they're not at the very very top of of the industry in terms of playing in the Premier League, but to be a professional footballer in League One, you still need to get to a very very high level. And without hopefully giving away too many secrets or you know breaking too much confidence, but I had 40 people on that call, okay? So MK Dons, pretty much 30 first-team players or, or, or 30 players and about 10 of Russell Martin's staff, so all his coaches, sports scientists, physios, etc. Now, whenever I'm talking about, you know, how they're doing, how they kind of coping, and they're saying, you know, we're training every day, we're kind of trying to do our stuff to keep ourselves in some sort of shape. So I then take them through a few different exercises and, and eventually get them to the point of going, okay, so these are some of the things that I've experienced in my playing days and, and for doing that from kind of the 20 years that I was either at Spurs or Norwich or Burnley, whatever, Northern Ireland. And the question ultimately came to, 
So how much time are you consciously dedicating to improving the mental side of your performance? Have a guess and what kind of percentage do you think they come out with? Uh, 20 to 40 percent. No, 20 to 30. Zero point zero. <laughs> None. Mm. And I am a little bit shocked at that because, you know, as much as, you know, we have obviously done a session, very, very grateful whenever you brought me into when you're at the college and, you know, we're going through different aspects of performance with, with your old team. And, you know, I appreciate that if it's a kind of, know a college girls team or ladies team they might not necessarily see the value or might not have come across it or might just not have access to it you know i can completely understand that but when you're talking about elite professionals who you know any one of those players could suddenly get snapped up because they've had a good season into the championship or into the premier league and you know hardly any of them if any of them were doing anything to improve their mental performance or their psychology or working on their mindset. And it's not that they don't improve their mental performance or their psychology. My question was, how much time are you consciously dedicating to improving it? Because it's a bit like you will technically get better when you're playing against better people, whenever you have to make those better decisions, when you have to make quicker decisions because they're bigger, stronger, faster, etc. That's just a natural improvement as you go through the different age groups and you know until you eventually get up to whatever level. But that's just a natural progression. My question was, how much time are you consciously working on it? So you could consciously work on your athleticism by going into the gym and doing extra sessions in there or any sessions in there. But whenever I'm saying how much you're doing outside of the training that the kind of the club's giving you, and let's be honest, most clubs in the the whole English structure, the whole English pyramid, like as far as I can tell, there are very, very few professional clubs that have full-time sports psychologists. So I should just temper this with the, also the fact that I had a, a conversation with a with a former teammate of mine. He was in the youth team with me at Spurs, and he's now, a, you know, a football agent. Works for possibly the biggest uh, football agency in the world. The you know the ones that look after the kind of the Gareth Bales etc. of this of this type, and and he was saying, you know, but some of the players are actually going off by themselves and individually working with psychologists. And I was like, that's brilliant, that's fantastic. But why is this still not happening on an organizational level? Because let's be honest, how much, and you know, anyone who's listening in terms of like any coaches here right there, how much time throughout the entire week that you're delivering coaching sessions, how much time are you spending on the technical and physical aspect of the game? What would you say would be a rough percentage of that? Oh, 90, 90%. If not more. Sometimes it's just a hundred percent. It's either you know training on the grass or in the gym. Yeah. And you know, again, probably just because and I know I'm biased, Gary. So because this is like kind of, you know, it's the subject I'm most passionate about. It's it's probably the reason why I think I had a kind of twenty year career in professional football when, by no stretch of the imagination, whenever I joined Tottenham Hotspur in nineteen ninety four, you know, it's it's interesting having a, having this time to kind of reflect on certain things. And I really believe that whenever I walked through that door at Tottenham Hotspur in 1994, it was just after the World Cup in America. So, you know, very, very um, pre prevalent for, for you being over there at the minute. Jurgen Klinsmann had just signed for Spurs. 
first day of pre-season, the, the actual the first team players went back. So the youth team lads who me coming off the boat over from Ireland, we all needed to train because the press are there and they want to get the photographs and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So effectively, my first training session is with a World Cup winner. And I'm warming up doing the circle and all the different training sessions with Jurgen Klinsmann. And in my head, and I didn't realize this pretty much at the time, but this is what was happening. In my head, I'm looking at Jurgen Klinsmann and going, if that's what it takes to be a professional footballer, I have no chance. So you imagine the limiting belief that I'm creating in my head. A, I have no knowledge of it or awareness that this is happening. I just know that I have this massive inferiority complex or limiting belief having that one training session with Jurgen Klinsmann. Now this is this is fascinating. So for me, it's gone all the way through from that and understanding why that was so important in my life and how I struggled through the youth team years and actually was the last person to um to be decided upon in our youth team whether I was going to get a contract or not. And, and again, ironically, I was offered a scholarship to America to go and play in and study in the States. And it was just at the time, whenever Spurs, Jerry Francis was the manager at the time, and he came to me and they offered me a one-year contract. Drum roll, do you want to hear these crazy wages that I was on in 1997? A crazy £200 per week. So, you know, massive, massive money. But as a professional footballer, so I was delighted. Didn't matter that I was the lowest paid player at Spurs. I was delighted because I was a professional footballer and at 18, getting that opportunity, you suddenly think, you know, I've left my family and friends for this. I've, you know, worked my socks off for the last couple of years, pushed myself, we talked about a comfort zone, pushed myself so far out of my comfort zone of leaving Belfast, being in the bright light, what's capable in my body to be a professional footballer because of Jurgen Klinsmann. Now, at the time we had Teddy Sheringham was our kind of number one striker. You know, he was the... Uh, I think he just won the golden boot the year before. So top, amazing player, great guy, fantastic player. Playing all through the season, I think he might even really get the golden boot again that year. But at the about probably January time, I should just throw in at this point that we had a guy on our youth team called Rory Allen. Mm. So Rory Allen, if you can remember him, if anyone can remember Rory, he was our, he was my age. So we both turned up on that first day with Jurgen Klinsmann played together in that in that training session but Rory was always like a he was just a really good player you know big tall guy but really lean really skinny but held it up well scored goals brave intelligent really really good player so he always kind of just pushed the bar for what our age group was so we, he went from a youth team he got into the reserves while he was still a youth team player and then we all signed professional contracts so we're not all in the reserves but because he was playing already he suddenly got into the reserves you know scoring more goals in the first year of his professional contract with me. But then at about December that year in um, 1996, Rory got his, his primary league debut. So he played up front with Teddy Sheringham against Man United live on Sky Sports. And I'm going, this is amazing. I'm watching my mate who have you know, come through two years with this and I'm seeing him playing against Beckham and Scholes and Giggs and you know, Kane and all those guys, seeing him playing against this, and then he scores. He scores on his debut live on Sky Sports against Manchester United White Hart Lane. And I'm not joking, in my head, it was like a little switch suddenly flicked. 
and I just looked at my mate scoring against Man United, the best team around at the time, just before they did the, the travel, a couple of years before they did the travel. And I just looked at him and I thought, if he can do that, so can I. And I, it's very hard to say that that's the reason why I suddenly went on and did what I did, but I definitely know it was a catalyst to going from, I don't think I could ever be a professional footballer, to suddenly, yeah, if he can do it, so can I. And within three months, I'd be in the debut, scored in the Premier League, and the rest is history. But that's how powerful the mind is and how limited we can be. And yet, I'm talking to professional footballers who aren't doing anything to try and improve it. Do you think then, with you saying the co- the coaches are missing the trick, I mean, is the trick, because it seems like, from my experience in 10, 15 years and in, in trying to connect with the social or sorry, in the social media with the coaching community, the awareness has gone up. If you were to get a thousand coaches to sit in here, every one of them would stick their hand up and say, the mental side is important. I appreciate it. Plus, mental health coming to the forefront of what we're doing. I like to think that there's coaches that want to work in the way. So if, if our awareness is improved and we want to be good in the area, What's preventing coaches from actually impacting players, in your opinion? <clears throat> Probably attitudes. I still think it's a um, it's got a stigma, potentially for for some coaches, and probably as a, as a sweeping statement. You know, I obviously don't know this. I haven't done any research into it. But as a sweeping statement, I would say the further you are away from the elite pinnacle top of professional football the less likely is you're going to do anything about it. Because what you know is going out on the field and just practice, 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 train, and then go into the gym. But of course, if I go back to my coming across the Spurs in 1994, two years later, we had our first uh, sports scientist join the club. So we had, and listen to this, we had one sports scientist for the entire club of Tottenham Hotspur in 1996. So it's at 24 years ago, one sports scientist for the entire first team, which probably comprised of about 25 to 30 players. The reserve team, which is probably another 15 players. The youth team, which is about another 25 players. And we have one sports scientist. Let me fast forward to a couple of years ago, whenever I finished my master's in sports psychology, I'm working at Crystal Palace. And in the youth team, so the U18s, the youth team at Crystal Palace, a professional football club, we had three sports scientists, we had a strength and conditioning coach, we had two physios, we had a doctor, we had a masseur, we had three analysts, <laughs> we had two coaches, we had a man. That is the progression, and that's what sports science has done to why now the the athletic side of, of you know professional sport, professional football is so good because of the science that's involved in it. But of course, when it comes to this, it is so much more difficult to measure this compared to how much can you push, how many times did he cross the ball? But of course, what statistics don't give you is it can't measure football intelligence. And what I mean by that is just because someone put in 50 crosses in a match, he could have put in or she could have put in 50 of the worst crosses, the poorest decisions. There was a man standing at the back post and he kept hitting the first man. Even if he does try and put it to the back post, he might have put it up like a little, you know, flight and one that's not actually helping where he really needed to whip it. I'm just using he because it's easier to say it. But 
So what I'm saying is it's so much easier to measure statistically what's happening from the technical and physical point of view. But and again, having a wee bit of insight into this world of academia and science and empirical evidence, when it comes to measuring anything in here, it is so, so difficult. So actually part of it is just the fact that it's, it's just very, very difficult to work on this because we don't really know what we should be working on. Yeah, plus I would go a step further and say that coaches, uh, when coaches like control, coaches like seeing someone in the gym, looking at the GPS, seeing what they're doing, looking at a graph, uh, having the rondo where you can see everyone and telling them all where to move, coaches like that there. Whenever you're giving player the space, uh, that road, I'm guessing, is like when it's done really well, it's a really flexible, it's a really, um, it's mistakes, it's full of growth, it's full of, there's not a lot of control in there, there's not a lot of like, not linear. So to go down that road, the coach is going to have to be very, very adaptable and is not going to see the results from it for six to 12 months, perhaps. Well, listen, I, I would even, I wouldn't even just say, you know, it's, this is not even coaching at certain levels of the, of the game. I'm talking about coaches all the way through, you know, from grassroots, the college, the all the way through to, you know, professional coaches. And there are still some coaches that I know of that I've had conversations who have no interest in helping their players develop that side of the game. They just, just have no interest. And that could be ignorance, it could be arrogance, it could be, you know, an informed decision. It doesn't really matter why they think that or why they do it, but that is what is happening. So if that's the case, it's no surprise why, you know, you're seeing so many players who are struggling. And, and you know, you mentioned mental health earlier on. I suppose you just really clarify that, you know, what I'm talking about, the, of this spectrum of performance and mindset and psychology, probably down one end of the spectrum is what probably I would consider mental performance in terms of how do you maximize your mental performance utilizing your you know, attributes and capabilities. At this end of the spectrum is more mental health and around that side, that's much more to do with well-being, you know, looking after your mental health, having that kind of pastoral care of it, which is completely different to what I'm talking about, which is basically getting the job done, no matter what's happening, because that's effectively what professional sport is. Professional sport is so much less about um, how is the person and more about can that person do the job they're being asked to do. Now, whether that's right or wrong, that's a whole other conversation, but that's professional sport. And if that all of the coaches that are listening, any players that could be listening, if that's what your aspiration is, then you need to know that. I would, I would completely agree. I think that coaches, again, the way we were taught, we are not, and I say we is just the, the overall culture. We are taught to be confident on the pitch. We are so when we are in our space, um, we also generalise. So whenever you're the coach who does excel in that, there, there is a labelling of you're the relationship coach or you're the friendly coach or you're the, you're the you're the positive one. Ah, oh, you're the positive one. Um, which I've been nailed with a few times yourself, and you're like, it's actually harder work to to shift people mentally than it is to say you're not lifting that enough or it needs to be better. Um, I, I suppose what I want to ask you would be like, what would be the first step for a coach to say like, all right, 
I am overlooking this, Paul. Uh, I get it. Where do I start? Because I haven't got a clue. Educate yourself. Read books. Go to seminars. Go on courses. Listen to webinars like this. Go have it, have the understanding. Because let's be honest, whenever sports science started to infiltrate the world of professional football back in the 90s, most people really had no idea what they were doing. You know, didn't know about periodization, didn't know about, you know, cycles and the way you should be doing things. It's just they didn't know because, you know, that whole um, concept of you don't know what you don't know. Well, I think now we're getting this stage and unbelievably sad that's taken to nearly 2020 before a lot of people. And I see some of the chats coming in there. A lot of people, a lot of coaches here working in this industry now know that they don't know. And if you know that you don't know, then there's no excuse for it. Because how many books do you think there are on this subject? How many articles, studies, empirical evidence, opinions, expert coaches who are working at the highest level, could they source information from? Countless, absolutely countless. As I said, right, the very start, this is my most passionate subject, my favorite subject. You know, that's why I think I had that 20 year career in professional football. That's why, you know, I worked as a sports psychologist with Norwich City and Crystal Palace. That's why I wrote my book on this subject, because it's for me, it's the most important. That's why I studied my master's in sports psychology, because I, I worked out a long, long time ago. That for me, and it's only me, I'm not saying you need to think like me or do what I do. But I worked out for me that the only thing I ever need to develop in my life is this. Because if I develop this, every single aspect of my life falls into place. Because if there is an attitude or a belief that I have about my fitness or health or financials or relationships or self-esteem, all of these things that are happening, they only ever exist in here. And if I can improve, and you know what I'm like, I, you know, I'm very, very kind of upbeat. I actually never use the word positive because it's, I think, like you say, it's got almost a stigma attached to it. But if I can get myself into the most healthy and constructive place mentally, I know that my attitude to my working career is going to be spot on, which is probably why whenever I came out of professional football 10 years ago, I had a relatively seamless transition from professional football and the keynote speaker. But it doesn't happen by chance. It happens because 10 years ago, I went on a course in America. I paid a huge amount of money at the time for me, considering I wasn't earning any money for the six months to a year coming out of professional football. Paid a lot of money to go on a course, on a keynote speaking course, because 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to be a keynote speaker. Because I looked around this whole world of, you know, former athletes going into businesses and different corporations that deliver keynotes and deliver talks and inspirational sessions and realizing that pretty much the majority, especially around the UK and Europe and parts over here, not necessarily in America, were all former athletes of either rugby or athletics, Olympians, or maybe they might have been explorers or academics or politicians. And I'm thinking, hold on. Football and soccer is the number one sport in the UK and Ireland, number one sport probably in the world in terms of participation, number of people who love it, play it, and want to be involved in it. And there's no one from my background doing what I want to do. Okay, well, 
this is what I this is where I'm at. I set myself my goal and pretty much I've been working towards that for 10 years and now where I'm at, where I'm at, I'm really, really happy, but I keep going back to it. Uh, I am at this point in my life, but it's not a coincidence because 10 years ago, I decided this is really, really important to me and I have the clarity of what I need to do, clarity of where I want to go and I'm going to make it happen. It has absolutely no guarantee that it would happen and actually where my figure is in terms of what I charge. I'm only 50% along the way. So I've still got a long way to go in terms of what I've set the goal for. But now that I'm 10 years down the road, I'm now going, well, actually, I've spoken around the UK and Ireland and I've spoken in America and done different things around Asia. Luckily, I've spoken in 16 countries around the world. Now I want to speak in 50. Because this is the goals that I'm setting myself. I just come across far too many people. Guys, it's not just in sport. It's not just in business. Just as a general observation, I come across far too many people who have very little idea what they're working towards or what their success looks like or what is actually the whole point of this thing. Because people are generally, you know, working really, really hard, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And if I ask them, so do you know what your definition of success is? What is it you're actually trying to achieve? I've, I've yet to come across many people who can give me that, yep, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want. And I suppose just because of the career and background I've had, you know, similar to yourself, whenever I left Ireland and home all those years ago, I left at 16 and my only goal was to be a Premier League and international footballer. And I was so focused on doing that. Did it guarantee that it mean I had any guarantee that that was going to happen? Completely, no chance. Because actually, and to throw it out in some sort of context, I really believe professional football and soccer is actually the most competitive and ruthless, ruthless industry on the planet. And the reason why I say that is because most kids growing up around the world don't want to be a doctor or they don't want to be a sales guy or they don't want to be a musician. There obviously are a few, but so many millions and millions of kids around the world want to play football. And generally, they probably don't even want to play football in their country. Where do they want to play? Premier League. Yeah. Premier League, because it's probably the most prestigious, richest, you know, sort of most um, most viewed league around the world. So they're all trying to get to the top of the league that I was closest to. So to do that took so much effort, time, focus, and all of the rest of it just to get to that point. So because this has been part of my life, I've always been working on this whole kind of subject and, and area, which is all around. And I don't care whether you call it psychology, mental performance, mindset, attitude, thinking. It's just it's all happening in here. And most people are doing very little in terms of their potential of what they could do. Yeah, let, let's take a couple of questions here. They're, they're flying in. Uh, we've got Cody Roy, good to hear Cody uh, and Amelia have both kind of asked the same thing with um, should mental training be separate from the physical or can you integrate the two? I think there's a place for both. I would say that, and this is why whenever I talk about the natural um, development you'll get from a mental point of view, is that the coaches will naturally be challenging players and making things more and more difficult. And whenever they get setbacks, coaches will be able to help them and, and put them in different scenarios. So there is a natural development anyway that happens. 
just the fact that you're not going to be winning every week and you're not going to be man of the match every week. There's a natural um, improvement from the resilience, confidence, you know, all of those things, the belief that you can do it. So there is an uh, almost, it's just part of the process of training and playing. But what I'm suggesting is, what about if you were doing extra stuff on top of that? How much more could that add to your performance? And what potential could that release? And I know you've heard this story before, Guy, but do you remember whenever I said, whenever I had the conversation with my dad about, because um, he's a big golf fan and, you know, he was always he was always watching him playing golf and he said, have you ever tried visualization? And I, I said, no, never even heard of it because it was only a 17-year-old kid. Um, and he said, well, Jack Nicklaus, best golfer that's ever been on the planet, still to this day, before he plays every shot, always visualizes of where he wants the ball to go. He said, why don't you try it? So one of the things I, I also would say at this point is that I didn't realize it at the time, but obviously reflecting back, I was very open-minded to what I wanted to do because this is what I was focused on of achieving of being a Premier League and international footballer. So having that conversation with my dad about trying visualization and you're probably a bit too young for it, but you remember those cassettes you used to get? You stick it in your wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but you know, he sent me across a little cassette. I remember listening to it, going through the practice, going through the exercise routines, blah, blah, blah. Getting up in the morning, doing it every single day, pretty much every week, every month, every year, for about five seasons in a row. Doing that one single scenario, I didn't even vary it. I didn't have the knowledge that you should be varying. I visualized one scenario pretty much for five seasons while I was at Tottenham Hotspur. And then, of course, you'll see my little montage of goals of whenever I kind of normally play to introduce myself. And, you know, it's also because I have some terrible hairstyles over the years that gives me a bit of laughter and stuff. But you know, you know what it is. It's just because I say, so what was the most common type of goal that I scored in my career? And the one goal that I scored more than any other goal in my entire career over 20 years is getting the ball on the left-hand side cutting into the edge of the 18 yard box and curling it in the far top corner. And of course, the one scenario that I used to visualize was getting the ball on the left hand side, cutting in and curling it in the far top corner. So just understanding the power of visualization is such a simple concept that any single player, person on the planet could do. I can't go back and say, guy, this is the reason why I scored those goals because they did that visualization. Because it's too hard to say. And you know, if my master's taught me anything, it's that understanding cause and effect is incredibly complex. So as coaches, hopefully you know that. Just because you do that doesn't mean this happens. Just because you do this, this isn't going to be an outcome. As we know, there's too many other factors that contribute to that outcome. But did it help me score those goals? Is it a coincidence? Probably not. So it probably did help me. But that's only after 20 years, whenever you look back and you're starting to understand and reflect on these things. But it goes back to the same point. Doing that visualization, did that guarantee that I was going to be a professional footballer? Nope. That it's going to guarantee I was going to score goals? Nope. But because I was so open-minded, I was doing everything within my power to give me the best possible chance to be a professional footballer. Robert has asked, what's an example of, so you used your dad there, what, what's an example of some sort of mental training that we can do with our players or what can we give them to try and spark that? 
there you just have it there visualization mental training is so vast it's like how can i improve physically how many aspects could you touch on a million and one how could you improve mentally to give you five off the top of my head um what kind of goals or targets do you have in a game what kind of goals or targets do you have in a season um what awareness do you have of the beliefs that you have about yourself as a player do you believe you're this type of player or do you believe you're that type of player are those beliefs helpful are they constructive do they hold you back do they limit you do you think do you believe you're a right back do you believe you're a center midfielder do you believe you're a number four do you believe you're a number seven because if that's the only belief you have about yourself you don't get signed as a professional number seven you get signed as a professional footballer which means you need to have the capability and understanding of all the positions um all the way through to what's your attitude to training what's your attitude to being open-minded what's your attitude to new concept new theories new techniques and that's just off the top of my head to think of what you could do as well as possibly see someone speak to someone about it but it keeps going back to what we said earlier just educate yourself there are you can go on google scholar and you can read millions and millions of articles that people who are way way more clever than i am who are writing studying researching this stuff at the cutting edge so there's absolutely no excuse and you don't have to read through the entire article if you have a u8 team if you have a u12 team there's an abstract at the top of those articles that last about 100 words to give you the high level this is the point of this if you want to take you want to. Uh, Lucas asked what example should a coach set in their communication body language when trying to influence players with these messages? Good point. Good point. We had a manager. I won't name names to protect the innocent. Hard to guess who it is. <laughs> but he should tell us to stay calm all the time as he was going ballistic on the sidelines. I'm looking across going, why is Nigel Worthington keep absolutely losing, losing the plot on the sideline with either the referee or one of our players or one of their players or the other manager or the, you know, whoever. And he's telling us, right, right, we need to keep calm. We need to, do, you know, don't be saying what you won't do yourself. The best example I've ever had is whenever you work with someone they're giving you guidelines and parameters and you know almost a framework of what to do and they walk their talk it's almost embarrassing whenever someone's telling you to do something that they're not prepared to do or actually aren't even capable of doing so either don't suggest it embody it this is a good one here damien how important is setting goals and targets for the brain? Because it's sometimes as coaches, we get scared of the goals because God forbid the player gets disappointed or we don't achieve them and we have to pick up a mess. So can you talk us through that process? Yeah. So there's, um, there's, there's a, there's a natural um, way that the brain functions and, but I, trying to get kind of you know uh, technical about it it's called teleological so your brain my brain 
functions teleologically, which means whatever we focus on, whatever we think about, our brain almost just locks onto it and we'll start moving towards it. So I'll give an example. If you're going up to hit a penalty and all you're focusing on thinking about talking to yourself, these little kind of, you know, self-talk or psycholinguistics that we go through all the time because you know that little voice in your head, Gary, or probably voices for you, maybe probably two, two or three in there. <laughs> that little voice in your head, whatever you're focusing on and locked onto, the brain will just keep moving towards it. But of course, the brain doesn't make any differential between whether what you're locking onto and focusing on, is that helping you or actually is it hindering you? Is it helping you or holding you back? Because if you're walking up to hit a penalty, and as you're walking up, you're focusing on hope I don't miss, hope a keeper doesn't save this, hope I don't trip up, isn't it? That's your entire focus. Then your brain's probably locking onto it because that's the way it naturally functions and you're making it less likely to achieve your goal, which is obviously to score the goal. Because effectively, there's like three ways that the brain, as a general rule of thumb, there's three ways that the brain will fo focus on. The first one's expecting to fail. And that's whenever you come across those players who walk out on the field and are a bit like, what's the point in trying? Because we're probably going to lose today. I'm sure you've come across that today when they're up against a you know, really good team that's got a great record. What's the point in even playing against these? Because we're probably going to lose. So that focus is number one, expecting to fail. Very unhelpful. Let's just say I've never come across too many elite performers who focus on that. But there are some people who focus on expecting to fail no matter what they're going to do. The second way to focus that you can focus, and this is almost a bit like how it's very, um, very common across a lot of people, wherever you are in the world, doesn't really matter. And that's trying not to fail. Let me give an example of this. We were, um, we were up, uh, we got uh, played in the Premier League with Norwich City in 2004 and five, and then we didn't really like it up there, guys. So we decided to come on back out of it again, and <laughs> we were relegated into the championship. And basically, because we had such a good team, we were expected as favourites to go straight back up that year. But after about, say, 20 games, Christmas time, we were bottom three, really struggling. I think we'd won one game in 11. And I remember uh, Nigel Worthington decided, listen, lads are struggling. They're working hard, but they're just struggling. Let's bring in a sports psychologist. So straight away, just as you think about that for a second, think of the stigma and the association with bringing in a sports psychologist. At what stage is the manager bringing in a sports psychologist? When the sh is hitting the fan. He didn't bring it in at the start of the season. I think, how can we improve our performance? Because we're already a good team. How can we improve this performance? Let's bring in a sports psychologist. The stigma, the association is, wait until it's all going wrong. Wait until it's rock bottom. Wait until the whole thing's going to kaput. Then bring in a sports psychologist. So he brought in a guy called Gavin Drake, who um, good friend of mine now. But all those years ago when I met Gavin, and he effectively brought in two sessions. And the first one was on what's called the thinking cycle, which is basically understanding how humans function and how we think. And the second was on focus. And the second one on focus explained these three ways to focus. You can either expect to fail, you can try not to fail, but understanding how the brain naturally functions, it can't do it, don't. So thinking about trying not to fail, the brain is still locking on the failure. And again, the highest performers, the most successful people don't think in number one, they don't think in number two, 
and Gavin shared with us what is the most helpful, most productive, most effective way to focus in whatever scenario you're going into, and that's expecting success. So then Gavin went out and observed us training, and he's listening to Nigel Worthington and all the other coaches, and this is some of the language that the coaches are saying. Right, lads, we're going to do a keep ball session. Okay, right, let's get going. So we started playing, and then someone gives the ball. Don't give the ball away, you. Okay, then we're doing a shooting session. Don't miss the target. Okay, don't be doing this. Don't be doing this. Don't be. And everything that their communication was, all the things that they didn't want us to do. So it's a bit like, you know, sprinting and running as hard as you can east looking for a sunset. Doesn't matter how hard you work, it's never going to happen. So get your focus on what it is, and that's expecting success. And we went out on the Tuesday night, and Dean Ashton, who, you know, fantastic striker, who just before he joined West Ham, went out, we played against Southampton, scored a hat-trick. And he was like, I can't believe that whenever I was going through this barren spell of not scoring goals, all I was thinking about was, hope I don't miss the target, hope I don't mess up, hope the keeper doesn't save this, until suddenly he just switched it from that, of hope I don't mess up, to hit the bottom corner, hit the top target, play it to your teammate, win your first tackle, whatever it is. All you're doing is focusing on what you want rather than focusing on what you don't want because you're just aligned with the way the brain naturally functions. And once you understand this concept, obviously it doesn't always just fall automatically into number three. But if you're in one and two, then at least you're aware that you need to do whatever it takes to get your focus to number three because that's what the most successful people do. That's what the way the brain naturally functions. And let's be honest, if someone like, I don't know, Richard Branson is starting a business. He's probably not thinking, I'm starting this business this year, but it's probably going to fail. Or I'm going to start this business, put all this money into it, and I hope it doesn't mess up. He's probably starting a business because this is what he wants to get, because that's what the most successful people do. Very good. Very good. Um, Hannah Duncan, also really good on this, because... Are we given basically the four four corner model includes the psychological side? Um, is there still too much emphasis and expectation on the coach to facilitate this? Like, are we leaving it to individual coaches too much? If so, how do we? I suppose if you're director of a club or you really want your your club to be better in this area, how do you educate coaches and parents? Um, I would say that. If you're using the four corner model, then why would the psychological aspect be any different from learning the other three corners? Because all it is is knowledge. It's just understanding that that's another aspect of the game. And, you know, without going over the top here, but because it is my, you know, passion that I talk about this area is just because I'm so gobsmacked that so many people do very little in it. And I'm thinking, well, the coach isn't an expert in strength and conditioning or sports science, but they're expected to do that. So why do they not know about this? And if you do have the resources to bring someone in, obviously great. Most people don't have that resource. So understanding more of the concepts and principles around the mental cyber performance, because remember whenever we did that little exercise with with your girls um when we talked about the the world cup in 2014 and you remember the semi-final and the really unusual result between germany and brazil and germany beating brazil 7-1 
and you're thinking, okay, let's let's apply this four corner model to that question. So why can Germany beat Brazil in a World Cup semi-final in Brazil? Why can they beat them 7-1 using this framework of a four corner model? And if you were to ask, you know, a lot of people what that answer is, what percentage of performance is most important? Again, the amount of times I've done this exercise and people come out with it and they generally go as a sort of as an average across the four corners, they go technical, tactical, 10% roughly. And the reason why they say 10% is because if you're playing in a World Cup semi-final, you're technically excellent, you're technically competent and proficient, very, very good. So it's they're all at that level, so it's probably not going to be much difference. And actually, do you think that the Germans are any technically better than the Brazilians? Probably not. Physically, do you think that the Germans are physically more superior than the Brazilians? I wouldn't necessarily say so because all the Brazilian players are playing at all elite clubs around Europe. So that's another aspect. Even if you looked at the social and said, well, around, well, could it be the pressure that Brazilians had before the game and being in Brazil and all that was happening at the time? Actually, these players are playing in front of 70, 80, 90,000 fans every week. They're playing in Champions League finals. They're playing in title deciders. That's just what they do. They're used to it. So if 10, 10, 10 leaves you roughly, not even roughly, exactly 70% in the psychological corner, and that would be my opinion, my observation, and it's only an opinion, so there's no right and wrong, but I would suggest that the reason and the large proportion of the reason why someone like a Germany would beat Brazil in the World Cup semi-final is because of their mental approach, and you could see it before the game. Brazilian teams crying their eyes out because they didn't have Neymar, didn't have Thiago Silva. German team, what were they like? Focused. Focused on the prize. Let's get it done. Let's move on to the final. After about 10 minutes, the Brazilian psychological approach. And then, of course, you started seeing the tactical things going out the window and physically stuff trying. So again, it's just using all of the corners that actually, as a coach, you're expected to improve all areas. I just think that's the area that most coaches do less research and have a less understanding of. Um, last one for you, the, and I apologise to people. This, this has been the most questions we've got on a webinar, and I'm nowhere near getting through them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to enjoy this one because you gave me a book a plug. From Adrian, in Paul's 2013 book, he talked about the game being quicker and more tactical in 2020 with intelligent footballers being more important than sized. He's been bang on about this. What future developments are coming? So what what book are you talking about? Can you can you describe what that book is and where, where you can get it? <laughs> the Stupid Footballer of Amazon. Uh, the super what Amazon? You mean on my website? Paulmcfay.co.uk. Of course you can also get it in some all sorts of good bookstores as well as a few bad ones as well, I'm sure. Um well listen, the reason when I when I wrote that book, it was because again I saw a massive gap in the market that very few people are touching on this world of sports psychology, mental performance, very few people are doing anything about it. And really, I just suggested that there's three areas that are going to allow you to become an elite professional footballer. And the first one is talent. And when I say talent, I used to think it was natural talent, actually, Gary. But then the more I've read about it, more I've researched it, you know, reading things like Outliers and Gladwell's 10,000 hour theory and reading books like um, Bounce by Matthew Said, you know, just 
all these different books that suggest that it's probably not natural ability because like Tiger Woods didn't, you know, wasn't born as a world-class golfer. William's sisters weren't born as world-class tennis players. So I think a talent that's been developed to a professional level is the first pillar. The second pillar is athleticism. And you're either my size and it's brilliant that we look like we're the same height on this on this screen when I'm actually four foot nothing, you know, so short out. Um, so you either got the physicality and athleticism and either you're my size or you're my old teammate, Peter Crouch, you're six foot seven. Not a lot probably you can do about that. So that's two aspects. And if you excel in any of those aspects, they'll both give you a chance to do it. But in my experience, in my kind of uh, research in this, the single biggest contributing factor to players making it at the top level, whatever that is, professional, semi-professional, college level, at their level is because of their mental performance or psychology. And when I'm saying that that is probably the number one thing that in 2013, when I wrote the book, that most people don't do anything about and they should do more. Because since 2013, it's not been the psychology psychology that's progressed. It's been analysis. Analysis now is the number one thing in, in football because we keep trying to steal it from, from your sports over there, don't we? Because you guys are amazing at it when it comes to statistics and analysis and understanding why things happen. The analysis, which is why Crystal Palace Academy, you teams have three analysts for every single player, every single match, every training, all of that. Because instead of the psychology going through the roof, it's actually the analysis, which is why Liverpool employ five mathematicians. Which is just frightening when you think about it. A football club based on the bootroom principles of coaching, pass and move, you know, just simplicity now has five mathematicians working for the first team because as every single time a player gets the ball, they can work out the formula and algorithm of where the best possible pass is or the next decision should be based on all of their research and all of their studies and data. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an eye-opener for sure. When you put it in perspective, I suppose a nice way to finish it would be to, with so much time on our hands here, it would be uh, useful for coaches to take on a little bit more information in this area. Where should they start? You mentioned there, but get into books. I mean, and you've thrown in. A couple so, of let me let me give an, let me give you a little thing. Then hopefully this might help, guy. Instead of going on Amazon or on my website to buy a book or whatever, just email me, because I have an e version of my book. So email me. My email's paulmcveigh at me.com. Yeah. Maybe you might be able to type that in there or yeah. give it to everyone after. Just email me and I will email you my my book so you can read it. Because effectively, I wanted to create a book that allowed younger players to understand the mental um, framework that would help them become professional footballers. It turned out whenever I went to the publisher, they said we needed to be a bit more autobiographical. So I added a few more stories in just to kind of, you know, fluff it up around the side. But effectively, it's all the lessons and framework that I use that I think are the most important principles to become the the probably the best version that you can be as a professional footballer or as a footballer player in any stage. 
So I'm happy to give that book away for anybody who's listening. Um, just because I really, you know, it's it, books that aren't about writing money. You know, it's they're really not sort of that's not the point of them. For me, it's always about how can I pass on this knowledge, which is why I'm traveling the world, speaking to organizations all around the world, all over the place, because I still find that this is the one area, and it's not just in football or soccer, this is in business and life. And to give an example, two weeks ago, before the lockdown started, I was supposed to go and deliver a keynote for Microsoft in Singapore, and it got cancelled because, you know, obviously Singapore closed the borders. I'm happy to admit that I went into a room and cried for a week because that didn't happen. But the whole point is that even at these massive organizations who do things so, so well and, and, you know, hugely impressive, hugely successful, and a large majority of people in this business, industry, sport, life, still massively underutilize their potential from a mental performance point of view. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm just going to put, someone's asked about your uh, your social media, so I'm just putting up your... Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So get on the Twitter, Um, get on the Instagram. Actually, guys, I should tell you as well, I'm just about to start some Instagram lives um, in the next in the next week or so. Just with the lockdown, you know, I, I do feel not in terms of um, uh, helpless in terms of my work of what I can do, because I'm, you know, I'm creating speaker training for athletes who are coming out of their sports so that they can come and do what I'm doing because there's not a huge amount of people doing that. I'm creating our e-learning program right now, the keynote, so I'm actually incredibly busy, but helpless in terms of trying to assist the, obviously what's happening for COVID-19 and trying to, you know, do my little bit. So I'm trying to raise some money. So got a few um, big names on come on the Instagram live. So people like Michelle Salgado, you know, played for Real Madrid for like 12 years, European Champions League winner, European Championship winner with Spain, played in that team. Um, got someone like him, We've got Will Greenwood, who's a Rugby World Cup winner in 2003 with England, all the way through to who else? I've actually got the MD of Santander in America coming on. I've got Henry Winter, um, the Times journalist. Um, Rory Best, obviously, you know, Bestie from just retired from rugby all the way through to acting and, and different people from different parts of the world. Um, but yeah, it's all about, you know, the psychology of success, because no matter what industry these people are in, they were going to be successful because their mindset is taking them to that. So yep, get involved in, in Instagram because I think that's uh, that could be really, really interesting as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. Paul, top class, top class. A lot of uh, feedback rolling in here. Everyone, everyone loved it. The hour's just flowing. We need to get you on again. Anytime, yeah. Anytime, you know, you know, very, very happy to do that. And and um yeah, it, it I think if if there's one thing that I can try and finish on and kind of, you know, almost give as a as a last little bit of advice to, to anybody who's listening is just explore the subject. Not only for the players and you know, people you're working with or you know, training with, even for yourself. You know, my journey started all the way back at seventeen. And I read a book by Tony Robbins and, you know, no matter what you think of him, you think he's the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. All it did was it started me on this journey of discovery, personal development, understanding this more, understanding that the decisions I make as a 17 year old, whenever I become 32 and retiring from professional football are probably going to have a huge impact on it. And last little very quick story. 
I remember seeing Gary Mabbitt, the Spurs captain, before he we went out to training every day for 45 minutes on the physio bench. And even as a 17-year-old, I could see Gary Mabbitt, who was 36 or 37 at the time, realise that he's still by no stretch of the imagination old, still has another 40, 50, 60 years to live, but he was a physical wreck. And I remember looking at him, having read the book of going pretty much start deciding what you want to do, what you want your life to look like. And I remember looking at him, making a decision as a 17 year old, there is no way I'm ever going to end up like that. So much so that when I leave professional football, I want to be injury free. And long story short, I had another conversation with my mum. She suggested to try yoga, started doing it pretty much every day. Came out of 32, injury free. 10 years later, I'm 42. I know I look like I'm 14, but I'm actually 42. And, you know, I'm still injury free, which is why I'm training six days a week in this lockdown. But again, to go back to it, I made a decision. That's what I wanted. I did things that are going to help me to do it. And 25 years later, I'm still doing yoga, which allows me to be injury free in what's obviously after a long, long time of, of really pushing my body. Top class. Great way to finish it. Paul, thank you. Thanks so much. We'll uh, we'll talk to you Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.